Brought to you by Fruitnet Media, this is Fruitbox. Hello and welcome to Fruitbox, Fruitnet's series of conversations about the fresh fruit and vegetable business with me, Chris White. Every week I talk down the line with people from across the world of fresh produce about some of the biggest issues they face today. I want these conversations to give you the best insight into how to do better business in fresh fruits and vegetables. I'm delighted to be back here on Fruitbox with a new season of new fresh produce conversations. We've been off air for the last several months, busy with loads of other projects. Uh, But I've been amazed by how many people tell me that they listen in regularly. Thank you for all your kind comments, and it's really great to be back. It it was no surprise that the pandemic and its after effects dominated many of the conversations on here over the last couple of years. It was just a few weeks ago that the World Health Organization declared that the pandemic was officially over. And so it brings us on to some of the other challenges we face. They haven't gone away while we were busy with COVID. Things like the future for food and farming at a time of climate change and population growth How how do we feed the planet in future? And and how do we do so sustainably for the planet and for business? Uh, And I'd like to look at some of these issues in this week's Fruit Box. Indeed, they were the subject of a fascinating lecture delivered by today's guest to a packed audience here in London only a few days ago. Sir Charles Godfrey, the eminent population biologist at the University of Oxford, joins us today on Fruit Box. Uh, Charles, if you would... Please do tell us something of your work at Oxford University. You run something called the Future of Food Programme. What is it? Thanks, Chris, and it's a pleasure to join you. Uh, At Oxford, my uh, job is director of the Oxford Martin School. The Oxford Martin School is part of the university where we try to bring together interdisciplinary teams to look at major challenges of the 21st century. And before I became director and continuing now, Uh, I I direct one of the programmes of the school, which is on the future of food. And that's to try and bring together the different aspects of the food system going ahead, the economics, the um, how we can produce more food more sustainably, and very much the environmental and the health aspects of uh, changing food system. And this this was all all those elements were very much part of, uh, of your address, your lecture at the City Food and Drink Lecture just a few days ago. And you started out by reminding us all of the, of the huge demographic challenges that the planet faces over the coming decades. Uh, our population is, is going growing fast. Nobody needs us to remind uh, you of that. But uh, And if you look at the population of a country like Nigeria, let's, let's look at that one, it's set to double to 400 million by 2050 from 200 million, a little bit more than that uh, today. Now, now the prospect of a planet with so many people on it fills many of those um, who are here today listening in with absolute dread. You take a rather different point of view, don't you? Uh, Yes, I'm a population optimist. I mean, my background is in population biology. Uh, I understand the issues around populations which are growing exponentially geometrically. And, of course, this has been a long-term concern of many people. Uh, Famously, in the late 18th century, uh, Malthus, one of the founders of economics, predicted uh, severe famines in the early 19th century. 
because he thought the capacity to feed the population would not be able to keep up with population growth. That didn't happen for complex reasons, including the uh, Industrial Revolution. Um, I'm just about old enough to remember the next sort of what I call um, at time of Malthusian pessimism in the 70s and 80s, when Paul Ehrlich wrote The Population Bomb, where we had the Club of Rome. And rereading some of those documents now, especially The Population Bomb, uh, Ehrlich was predicting um, famine so severe that we would see the end of democracy in Europe by the end of the 20th century. Now, that didn't happen, and that didn't happen because of the um, Green Revolution. And I think the most extraordinary thing that has happened in my adult intellectual life is that we know that if we bring people out of poverty, if we educate their children, especially girls, if we provide access to reproductive health care, then populations do decrease. And we have almost certainly, to use this statistician Hans Rosling's phrase, gone through peak children. The number of surviving daughters to an average woman on earth now is only just above one. So we are, population growth is decreasing. So I like to tell my students that at my advanced age, I'm actually more of an optimist now than when I was their age, even though when I was their age, we didn't know about climate change. Now, having said that, I'm talking about global pictures and there are real challenges in certain areas. And parts of Western Asia, parts of sub-Saharan Africa, are there are some real demographic issues there. But um, I, I mean, to use a sort of colloquialism, I think it's game on. I do think that if we can get through the next forty or fifty years, um, we have the we can look forward to a time when humanity's demands on the planet will cease to grow and even decrease. And so to me, the next 30 or 40 years, historians centuries ahead will look back on these next couple of decades as just incredibly important, providing, of course, we get through to the next couple of centuries. Well, I look forward to welcoming you back onto Fruitbox in 2050, and we can check uh, uh, um, whether uh, those predictions are right. But as you say, um, population growth is slowing as more people escape poverty and, and become much better off. But there remains still the huge challenge of how to feed this still much larger population. I mean, it requires a, a new type of agriculture, doesn't it? And the starting point for that has to focus much more on research and development, which is music to the ears of an academic like you. So if you look at the um, likely increase in global demand for food over the next 30 or 40 years, um, then the estimates, and we've done some at Oxford, come out somewhere around 30 to 60%. So we are going to have to produce more food, but 30 to 60% um, seems to me very much doable. And there are two ways we need to do that. First of all, we need to close the yield gap. So if you look around the world, I, I'm stating the obvious, not all uh, agriculture is as productive as it could be. And then your point, um, music to the ears of an academic is that we need to invest in research so that we can increase productivity going ahead. And there's good econometric analysis that shows that if you invest in agricultural research, you get a yield and an economic return, albeit with a uh, time lag. So the time lag of investment in agricultural research is often higher than in others. It is often high in other sectors. Um, but we have to do this uh, against the background of sustainability. 
So we do need um, traditional research into agronomic yields, but we need it to um, refocus it somewhat to sustainable increased agronomic yields. I, I like the term sustainable intensification, although I know some people worry about it. Um, we have to produce more food from the same agricultural footprint, and we have to do it in a way that doesn't undermine our capacity to produce food going into the future. And the need for that investment research is is kind of is yesterday. It's not. Uh, we can't wait until tomorrow to start investing. Yeah, I, I think we were somewhat lulled into a false sense of security, uh, um, especially in the rich world. Uh, food prices were pretty stable from the end of the oil crisis in the 70s uh, to um, 2008, 2010. And I think we perhaps took, took our eyes off the ball in investing in future productivity growth, and particularly in how we can uh, how we can rewire our food system so that we do produce food and more food, but do it in, in a sustainable manner. Mm. Now, one of the other things that we know about uh, about people as they become richer is they may have smaller families, but they also tend to switch their eating habits. They eat more animal proteins. Um, uh, you mentioned uh, climate change a moment ago. Is, there's, a, there's a direct correlation, isn't there, to the to the consumption of meat and its impact on the planet. Um, that's true, isn't it? Yes, I, I, and this is sort of simple energetics. It's more efficient to eat plant-based foods than to eat uh, animal foods that uh, themselves eat eat, um, eat plants. So essentially, if you shift from a, a strongly meat-based diet to a more plant-based diet, then you, you cut out the middleman. So it, it's obviously um, more efficient. Um, livestock production also has some specific effects on greenhouse gas emissions. It produces a lot of methane. Now, methane is a curious gas compared with carbon dioxide in the sense that it's a more powerful warming gas, but its residence time in the environment is much less. Um, and so a constant production of methane doesn't actually warm the planet, whereas a constant production of carbon dioxide does. Mm. Now, some people argue that means we don't need to worry about methane, but another way of looking at it is that if we want to have any hope of trying to cool the planet, then reducing our production of methane in the short term actually has a cooling effect. So it is complex and it's not a straightforward equivalence between carbon dioxide and methane. But my view is that if we have any hope of keeping the world uh, from warming less than two degrees, less, let alone 1.5, then we have to have difficult conversations about dietary change. And that in the rich world will mean transferring to a more plant-based diet. Um, we have to do that in a way that is a just transition that looks after the livelihoods of the people who currently de depend on, on producing uh, meat. Um, I, I'm not personally a vegetarian, but I'm trying to eat much less meat to be, become more of a flexitarian. And I think the sort of mantra of less but better is a way of thinking about how we might have diet change going ahead. But the one point I would make is that I'm sort of largely concentrating on middle and high income countries now. It would be ethically completely irresponsible to say to 
a pastoralist in northern Kenya, you've got to reduce your meat consumption when that is his or her only source of, uh, of food and much else beside. But by the same token, he might be exporting fruits and vegetables to us in the in the rich north. Uh, you're eating more fruits and vegetables, I'm sure, me too. Uh, it's good news for our sector, the one I work in, the fruit and vegetable business. Yes, um, there is very clear evidence that increased consumption of uh, fruit and vegetables is good for health. Um, there are challenges for uh, the fruit and vegetable sector um, to produce more efficiently. Um, but, but these, I think, are exciting and certainly meetable challenges. And of course, um, fruit and vegetable has a relatively small land footprint compared with staple crops, compared with, with, uh, with livestock. So um, that is a good basis upon which to build sustainability. I think one of the challenges for the sector is around water use. And um, again, it's almost trite to say it, right crop in the right place is the way to think about these things. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned um, there the, uh, uh, the, the lower impact, the, the lower environmental impact of, uh, uh, of uh, fruits and vegetables and, and doing the right crop in the right place. M much of the growth in the sector that I've been working in now for more than 30 years in these last decades has been in the global trade of fresh fruits and vegetables. Now, are you saying that that's sustainable or not sustainable in future? The word these days is that it's really rather better to eat locally. Um, is, that, is that better for the planet, do you think? Inevitably, it's more complex than that. Now, I, I, I'm not sure a tomato is a fruit. I, I, um, I think technically it might be, but there's an example. So we're talking in the UK at the moment um, and you can buy UK grown tomatoes in February and um, March, or you can import tomatoes from Morocco. And the locally grown tomatoes have a larger footprint, at least on average, because of the heating that's required. And that, it, that outweighs the carbon cost of the transport from Morocco. So um, I think that it's very difficult to make generalizations. Um, and I think a corollary of that is that we need much better data and data systems so that we can make informed decisions on this. And I think this is an exciting time for people who are interested in data in the food systems, there are a variety of initiatives, some international, some national. There's a lot of interest in the research community, including my colleagues at Oxford, to um, try and get the data so we can be, go beyond some of the um, sometimes simplistic statements about local is always best um, or, or um, transport is always worse. Mm. It was rather difficult to find British-grown tomatoes uh, this winter, but that's perhaps the subject of another uh, um, uh, episode. Or Moroccan-grown tomatoes, for that matter. <laughs> that's, that's very, very true. Now, um, you concluded your lecture the other evening by saying you're very much in favour of a globalised food system. Uh, isn't it going to be rather more difficult for you to defend that position in future government? And consumers seem to be heading in, in the opposite direction. They reckon the days of globalisation are, are done for, that they're finished. The 
food system has always, to a certain extent, been globalised. If if one goes back to uh, Roman times, when the globe was a bit smaller, but one had the enormous uh, shipments of uh, grain across the uh, uh, across the Mediterranean. Um, if we don't have a globalised food system, a large number of people are going to starve. Um, put yourself in the position of the agriculture minister or prime minister in Egypt. Um, Egypt, what is about 100 million now, an increasing similar trajectory to what you mentioned in Nigeria. You're never going to be able to feed that many people from the strips of land along the Nile and a few, uh, a few oases. So um, globalization in the food system is good and it's inevitable. I'd like to co co quote the economist uh, Joe Stieglitz who says that um, the issue around globalization is not so much whether it's good or bad, but whether it works in favor for in particularly the less powerful. So we absolutely have to have a globalized food system. We need to make use of the global grain baskets that is South America and Australia. As I said, without that, people will go, will go hungry. And I worry that some of these sort of geopolitical trends to deglobalization at the moment, um, which are prompted by tensions between, for example, the US and China, um, that there may be um, effects of that that transfer into the food system. So for example, you can transfer the manufacturer semiconductors from mainland China to the States, likely at greater cost, but it is possible. You cannot move the um, wheat fields of Argentina uh, to Europe or, or, or North America. And I just worry if we put in place frictions in global trade in these other sectors that they will have negative effects on the food sector. Well, one thing that agriculture is always uh, bound to do is deliver up frictions in global trade, and uh, we'll be looking at those in future episodes of Fruitbox. But Sir Charles, that's all we've got time for. Today, I was joined down the line here in the UK by Sir Charles Godfrey, Director of the Oxford Martin School at the University of Oxford. Sir Charles, thank you very much indeed for joining us today on Fruitbox. Thank you, Chris. A pleasure. Now, you can find today's conversation with just Sir Charles and the many others I'm having here at the Fruitbox section on our website, fruitnet.com. You can also watch Sir Charles's recent lecture in full on the internet. Just Google City Food and Drink Lecture and follow the links. I share every episode of Fruitbox on my profile on LinkedIn. Connect with me there too, post comments on what you hear, and please do reshare my posts with your followers. And don't forget to let me know what issues you want to hear discussed here on Fruitbox. Stay tuned and continue to make Fruitbox your regular listen. That was Fruitbox and this is Chris White. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. To sponsor a future episode, please email advertising at fruitnet.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Fruitnet Live. And don't forget you can keep up to date with all the latest fresh produce industry news at fruitnet.com.